Welcome to another Axe Church podcast. You're listening to episode 28. Glad you're here with us. My name is Hunter. I am the um, worship leader and media leader here at Axe Church. I have with me um, two David Robinsons. Uh, we have Pastor Dave and Pastor David, um, just to kind of clear things up. Not a whole lot, but I tried. Uh, you know, we'll figure it out one way or the other. Uh, this is Pastor David, or just David, or Hey You, or whatever people have called me worse. So um, this week we are, this is our last Dear Skeptics uh, commentary podcast. And this week we did essentially a question and answer session where I stood up there and let people text me questions and I did my best to answer some of them. And so if you get a chance to listen to that either on this channel or watch the video, you can see uh, the questions we did answer. But we got a lot more questions than I could answer uh, during the time that we had, uh, because as you know, Uh, There's football on Sundays, and people don't want to stay in church all day. So um, what I've done is I've brought uh, these questions for us to answer today with Pastor Dave and with Hunter, and we'll see, uh, we'll let them each give it a chance, and then I'll answer the actual correct answer uh, once they they give it their their best shot. Right. Um, well, let's, I mean, let's dig in. I don't know how many of these we have, but I've, I've literally, uh, I'll let you see, see this, they have the blue dot next to them. I have not opened these and prepared for them. So I, this is just like on Sunday. I'm going to open them. We're going to read them. We're going to see what it says. And then we'll go from there. First one is, uh, could God microwave a burrito so hot that not even he can eat it? Now, I actually did see this one the other Sunday, and although it's funny, uh, I'm going to give the really quick answer to this, uh, this question. The answer is no. And the reason is um, because, first of all, God would never cook in a microwave. I mean, he can do things a lot better. But <laughs> the reason is, is because God uh, can't, do, uh, the, can't do nonsense because nonsense isn't a thing. Uh, nonsense is still nonsense. It's the same, can God make a rock so big that he couldn't move it? Um, that's not a thing. Uh, you know, God can do anything, but nonsense is not a thing. And so um, God can't do things that are what we would call that carry their impossibility in them. Uh, in other words, they are when you say them, they are uh, contradicting themselves. They're not they're not actual even sentences. They don't mean anything. Um, so God can do anything. But microwave and a burrito so hot that God can't eat it is not a thing. Um, and so. There you go. That's that's your pretty simple answer on on that one. Let's get into something uh, maybe a little more serious here. That's clever, though. Um, okay, this one just says, "Why do we have to be baptized? What is the purpose?" Um, and I know we actually probably have three um, not different opinions on this, but probably different uh, places that we would come from. I'm going to start with Hunter because he comes from a tradition that. Um, I personally would say overvalues baptism, um, but I want to let him uh, give give his thoughts, and then we'll go to Pastor Dave, and then I'll um, give my thoughts. So go ahead, Hunter. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. I think the tradition I come from among uh, Christian denominations kind of gets a rap for uh, just as long as you get somebody baptized, nothing else matters, you know. Um, and I definitely kind of grew up thinking that the rest of the Christian world was anti-baptism. They didn't baptize, and so that's why they were <laughs> that's why they were wrong. Um, and so the way I have come to view it now, which um, I didn't really even start to think about what and why until college, because in high school I wasn't really getting any other opinions. 
got to college, I went to Bible college and uh, kind of wrestled with it there. Um, and I've since wrestled with it, uh, even since then, because um, my Bible college was still the same tradition, um, just, you know, more ideas were presented and, and things like that. So I know um, some extreme beliefs where unless you get baptized thinking that it is the baptism that saves you, like that has to be what you're, you're, you're putting your belief that this act of baptism is what is saving you. If you do not have that belief going into baptism, even if you do get baptized, baptized just out of faith in Jesus, it's no, it's not, it doesn't matter. Um, the magic water view. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's like an extreme, uh, even people in my tradition would laugh at that. Um, well, that's, and then, that's rude to laugh at other people's ideas. Well, Hunter, sometimes it's just a little funny. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Oh yeah. Um, and then the view that I probably, that like my parents raised me on was that, um, in baptism, it's the moment that, uh, salvation takes effect. Um, it's, it's kind of confusing. It's, it's something that I've had uh, a tough time thinking about because I don't necessarily know if you can say that, um, both because in scripture it shows people, um, having the Holy spirit before they'd ever encountered any type of water. Right. Any and, type of water or just baptism? Well, water? you know, yeah. yeah. Baptism water. Right. Um, I'm sure they had a glass of water. Um, or and then, but I also think that it's, um, so you're saying, just so I'm clear on this one, the view that you sort of grew up with was that salvation sort of vests. If we were talking about, you know, so you have, there's a certain time that comes when you've put, you've been working for a company a certain amount of time or whatever, and you, and, and there's a retirement package or whatever. So at a certain point, it adheres, it vests, it becomes, it becomes real. And now you get it no matter what. Your, your view is sort of, Okay, you kind of got saved upon belief and calling on the name of the Lord Jesus, but salvation is sort of what really made it stick to you. What made it what made it actual vest and, and real? Um, sort of. That might have been how I saw it at a young age. Um, okay. You're still pretty young, but okay. <laughs> I mean, like under fifteen. Okay. Age. So three or four years yeah. ago. <laughs> gotcha. How how how, was nine years how ago. have you transformed okay. your views in the last three or four years? Um, <laughs> I would now I would say um, I view it more as it is. It's just a process that you can't really you can't say at any one point um, is when salvation, like you said, adheres or anything like that. Um, I think that that repentance and belief. Um, is the most important part of that process. Um, I think if for some reason you've never heard of the idea of baptism, but you repent and believe, um, you're okay. Um, I think the main problem comes when you look at any part of that process and you say, well, I'm not willing to go through that for, uh, for Jesus, for, to put my faith in Jesus. That's when, um, the whole, the whole process kind of falls apart, I think. Um, so baptism. So maybe you think it's an indicator of whether or not someone has that failure to to follow Christ in obedience in baptism for those who believe it's something that God called them to do would be an indicator that they're not really following Christ is sort of what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know how often that happens. I don't know how often people go. It happens sometimes. Huh? Yeah, maybe yeah, it does. I guess I've I've not seen it happen, but that's because I also grew up in a, in a 
uh, tradition that that just, said if you didn't get baptized, you probably weren't going to heaven. Yeah. Uh, no, it just wasn't like it like wasn't uh, it wasn't even a thought. Like there was no thought that you wouldn't get baptized if you believed. Mm-hmm. So. Um, uh, there's something about some dude stuffing your head under water that some people don't like, believe it or not. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I guess that so makes sense. Let's let Pastor Dave weigh in on this. Uh, he's slightly older um, than you are, and, and maybe he's probably had a few different views. I know he's had more than one view on this during his life, so you can take us through that. Yeah, well, I had to learn through experience, time, and uh, information. What really opened it up to me was when we had Jews for Jesus come to our church and started to recognize that the Old Testament was the way we interpret the New Testament, and it's from the Jewish standpoint that you approach these things. Now, what is water baptism? You have to go back to uh, the fact that water baptism did not begin in the New Testament, and some people don't realize that. Uh, Christian baptism uh, did not uh, is is a baptism that comes from the Old Testament, and here's how this thing works. In the Old Testament, it's called washings. You find the first instance when uh, Moses was to bring Aaron and his sons before the the tent of the meeting and wash them, baptize them. In the temp in the temple, there was a, a thing called the sea. Uh, every priest had to baptize himself for cleanliness. So there were many baptisms. In Hebrews, it talks to it talks about multiple baptisms. Uh, that's because that's what was clear. So let's understand that water baptism isn't a singular thing, that it, there's different types of baptism. The one we're talking about is the one what Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them. Okay, so that gives us the context in which we're talking about what baptism. It was very common for rabbis to baptize followers, disciples. Disciples were baptized for the person who they followed. And so if you're going to be baptized in the Jesus name, that means you're going to become a disciple of Jesus. So there's no uh, magic in the in water baptism. It was a significance to confirm the fact that you're a follower, a disciple of Jesus. Uh, the, the system that I was raised in or the, was uh, Quaker, and they didn't baptize at all uh, because they said, you know, uh, spiritual is more important than physical. I still believe spiritual is more important than physical. However, there is a significance to water baptism. And I believe that it is uh, something that you want to do as a disciple because you want to identify as a disciple of Jesus Christ. That really is what the baptism is all about. It's a discipleship baptism. Uh, now, there, there was the proselyte baptism, which what we uh, in the Christian realm have much more taken that definition of what baptism is. And what that was, uh, there was three parts to to somebody becoming into the Jewish system was they had to be baptized. They had to be, if they're male, circumcised, they had to offer sacrifice. But the baptism, the rabbis long before Jesus came along said it was like a someone entering to the waters of baptism and dying and being born anew. That was actually the term they used, born again. Uh, so it's very interesting that when Jesus said you got to be born again, 
that, that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with what that meant in water baptism. So we've kind of taken that baptism and said that when a Christian is baptized, they enter into the waters and they die to themselves and they come out born again, uh, fresh, a new creation in Christ Jesus, symbolically, not literally, because that happens at the time of regeneration. So we've kind of taken on that proselyte, but the real, the real contextual correct thing is that you're a disciple, you're being baptized as a disciple, go make disciples, baptize them in the name of Jesus. That is so they were Jesus's disciples. And if you read through the book of Acts, you're going to pick that up. You're going to see that they were baptized in the John. So what if you haven't been baptized in the Jesus and let's get baptized in the Jesus, et cetera. I'll just stop there because I, that's plenty of information. Yeah, well, and, and baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that, you know, is, is the call that we have. There's, there's a couple different places, right, where Jesus gives us the Great Commission and tells us to baptize. Unquestionably, we're talking about discipleship, baptism. This is the sign that you are my follower. Um, and so I grew up also as a Quaker. I thought of it as, because the tradition I came from uh, did not value water baptism, um, you know, wanted to value the spiritual reality and not over the physical reality, but not just over the physical reality. They got rid of the physical reality. Um, some did. I some mean, did. Yeah. Most did that, that I was around. Yeah, uh, correct. You know, that was, it was not a thing that was done. And so yeah, On the West Coast, um, that's true. Right. And so, you know, it was one of these things where I just never thought it was important. So it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I actually went through the process of baptism, understanding it for what it is, which is, look, it's, it's, uh, it's an obedience issue. Christ says, do this. This is how, this is, this is a way that people know that you're a disciple of Christ. There's a reason why we do it publicly. We do it publicly to show people that we have made the decision to follow Christ. And if you understand the spiritual world, it's not just the people who are standing there who get to see that you now belong to Jesus. Um, spiritual, one of the issues with spiritual realities is they happen um, if, there's a, if there's a connection between you. I believe in God. That's something that happens in my mind, in my heart, in my soul between me and God. But but the angelic ones can't see that because they can't see inside your mind. They can't see inside your heart. Um, the, when you're making a, a profession of faith in Christ and becoming baptized, you're doing something physically and obvious and public that everyone, both both human and spiritual, can see that you now belong to Christ. So there's actually some real significance to uh, to being brought into the church in, in through baptism, to be brought into discipleship through in Christ through baptism, and so for those who it's not, I don't believe it's optional for those who understand it to be a call or, an, or a call to obedience from Christ. I will say that for those who, like I grew up with in the Quaker church, who never saw it that way, who never understood it that way, who didn't believe that that's what it was, I don't think that God's going to, that Jesus is going to say, oh, you never got baptized. I'm really upset with you. I, don't, I just don't think so. I think that for them who didn't understand it, they won't be expected. But for those of you who have, have grown up in a tradition where you understand the scripture to be saying that Christ is calling you to baptism as, a, as an act of obedience, to not then get baptized would be an act of disobedience. And so that's why we get baptized. Uh, as, a, as Pastor Dave said, this is, a, this is an act of a disciple. This is an act of, of disciple making. This is us saying we are Christ's. It's actually a, a form of commitment because you can be a follower of Christ, but then you're going to be a disciple of Christ. You know, there were followers with Jesus and there were disciples. Uh, the discipleship is a higher commitment level. So when you get baptized, 
you are actually at committing to a higher relationship with Jesus, uh, making him your master, your Lord. Uh, some people call it uh, full dedication or whatever. Uh, but if you really understand baptism, you understand that you are making a commitment to Christ at a, at a higher level than uh, before. Uh, now, I don't think a lot of people know that when they get baptized. Many people get saved and baptized at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, and that's that's fine. That's good. Uh, that's what they did in Acts. So it, it's a good thing. It, it, it doesn't mean, mean you get saved because if that were true, the thief on the cross couldn't have been saved. There was no chance to get water baptized, and there was no need for him to become a disciple of Christ. He was going home that day. Right. So uh, I disagree with any with any view of baptism that suggests that um, salvation as an ontological, uh, an out there event in reality, um, is connected to the water. Uh, I don't I don't I don't agree with that. Um, salvation is something that occurs upon belief in Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, it, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you're saved. Um, there's a repentance that's involved. There's a there's a an obvious for the for the believer for the person who truly comes to believe in Christ and 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 is repents of their sin and is saved and so on. There should be a natural. They should feel compelled to follow Christ and right. the things that He's called them to do. Yeah. Uh, does that mean that every single time? That, that a person become, has that level of maturity and following grace? No, it doesn't. And, and that's not for us to um, look into. But it, I do not subscribe to a view that somebody would say, well, if the person hasn't gotten baptized, therefore they cannot be saved. You might say, the person hasn't gotten baptized. That's evidence that they aren't interested in following Christ. And or that's as far as you can go. Either yeah. they're ignorant. Or ignorance. They, they can't. Right. They, you're to become disciplined to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it. To him, to him it's sin. Yeah. That's what James says. And, and they get that idea from Peter, by the way, of the baptism, because it says that eight souls were saved by water. Right. And so they, you know, in the, in the, in the Catholic tradition is you got to be baptized. Uh, well, Lutheran, and, there's, and, and there's a, you know, repent and be baptized. That's in there. Yeah. There's, there, there are different, there, you can proof text out any view you want. I'll tell you this, there are, and, and if you go through the orientation class that we have here at Acts Church, you'll learn all about this, but there are, not this, these are not the only views on baptism. There are there are views on the method of baptism, when right. it should be done. Yeah. There are method all throughout the, throughout the church of people who are sincere about believing in and living for Jesus Christ. This is an area where reasonable minds have differed. Um, I still believe that the way that I see baptism is correct, but I'm not so arrogant as to say that reasonable minds can't differ on this issue. And so it's not something that you should be getting in. Endless fights about with people or, or, or you know, quarrels over baptism. Um, I think that, that that's just, that's not helpful to anybody. Then thank God that he is the one who looks on our hearts, right. uh, not the outward. So if whether if you were dunked or if you were sprinkled or whatever, if your heart was right before the Lord, that's what really counts. That's right. what he sees. Now, I wonder if this person who asked this question is kind of going, thinking that we took it in a different direction than what they intended. I'm wondering if they're talking more about... Why do we get like why baptism like why why is that a thing like why why isn't it like well then they should have been more clear in their question because I'm <laughs> done with it um, another time that's a problem with texting I guess uh, well I'm gonna read it again just to make sure just to make yeah, sure read it that, again. I'm, read it again. that I'm not I started off thinking base. about it uh, why do we have to be baptized 
what okay. is the purpose? So I think we answered Person, it. If what I just said is what you want to answer, you should have been more clear. Okay. There you go. Our content Now Hunter's clear. getting upset with the, the, the folks who are, <laughs> don't, don't, don't listen to him. He's, we're, you're fine. It was a great question. Um, will there ever come a time that the prophecies in the Bible will come to an end and we will know that Christ is coming? I guess, will it be chronological? Um, the way that I would, that I'm going to interpret this question is, you know, are we going to, are we going to have a tipping point with prophecy where it's very, very clear that we are going to know when Jesus is coming? Uh, let me answer that in as, as simple as I can. Then I'll throw it over to these guys if they want to um, tackle it. There's no question that there comes a time, you know, Jesus talks about, you know, when you look and you see the sky, you know, where the rain is coming, you know, you know, you, you, you see the, 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 when the fig leaf blossoms, you know, that generation will, will not leave the earth until these things happen. So, so there's an unquote, however you want to look at those passages, there's, there's, there's no question that as we see the prophecies in scripture about the end of the age and the end times starting to come to fruition and starting to happen, we know that the time is near. Okay. I, I personally won't go beyond that statement that we know that the time is near um, and that we should be waiting expectantly for the return of Jesus Christ. We should be waiting expectantly for the rapture. Um, and I would say that that time is now. I would say that we should expect now. Do I know if it's a year or 10 years or, or 50 years or 100 years? I don't. But I would lean on the lower numbers than the higher numbers personally. Um, what, the, what the time is near means according to to the Lord, and what it might mean to me, usually for me, the time is near means, why can't I have it now, Jesus? Today, right now, yesterday. Um, but for him, sometimes it means, well, let's wait a month or a year or a couple years. Uh, but the, the prophecies that have come through, and we don't have time to go into all of that, but the things that we can see already coming to fruition would suggest that the time is near, and you should expect, you should be waiting expectantly for the Lord's return. A caveat for that is, that does not mean that you sit looking at the sky waiting for Jesus to come back and forget about the things that he's called you to do. He should find you working. He should find you moving. He should find you as a faithful disciple when he comes yes. back, not as a sky gazer. So, um, yes, I believe Jesus is coming soon. I believe there's reason to believe that. I believe that the prophecy that's there would suggest that we are in a, a very different age and time than anyone has been since the time that Jesus left the earth. And that you should be expecting his return soon. I'll throw up to these guys if they want to chime in. Well, first of all, let's uh, say this. If, if you all of a sudden don't hear anything, then you'll know that the Lord came. <laughs> now let's all just go silent for a second. Yeah. <laughs> They'll know we did this, you know, a day or two ago. And so they're yeah. like, well, if the rapture no, happened, we probably live. Uh, this is live. This is live this right is now. Live. And... Uh, now... Uh, Jesus, there's no reason to give signs if there's no meaning to them. In other words, uh, if you put up a sign and, and it doesn't mean anything, it, it says uh, blank, then you have no idea what it means. So Jesus gave reasons to the signs. Now, he, he said no person will know the day or the hour. But you should know the season. That's very clear in the scripture because he gives the examples that David already talked about. Uh, when you see these things happening, you know summer is nigh. Uh, so we know we can know the season. And uh, since we know the things based on Israel, and uh, you'd have to go into a whole thing, but just let's just say this, that we were put on pause 
for the church age, what we call the church age, uh, until the Lord restores his people completely. And uh, un until that uh, time ends, it says that when the day of the Gentiles end, that's when the, the last uh, seven years uh, begin uh, that is prophesied in Scripture. So we, we go by that. So the fig leaf blossoming, what is that? Well, that's the biggest key, uh, if you can figure that out. Uh, I personally hold to the truth that 1948, when miraculously Israel became a nation and the land was be in the process of being restored, which it has been completely almost now, uh, that that is the time. So if that's true, those born in 1948 will not see death before the Lord returns. Now, you mean all of them? Because some of them. No, not not all of them. Uh, obviously, that wouldn't be all of them. But that generation, that generation born in 1948, would not. Now, what we know today is that people are living much longer than they ever have before. No, it seems really convenient. What year were you born again? 1949. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> My sister was born in 1948. We will. We uh, if uh, if that is the correct, and I, I'm going to repeat this. If that is the correct interpretation, then we will not see death. Now, I uh, I'm hoping the Lord will come any moment, and I think he can. I think that if you look at the, if you go through, and we don't have time to go through all the prophecies, but you look at all the things that come true, some of those have never been possibilities in the past. That's why there's so much confusion on that. However, we are in the most unique time, and I believe we're in the time presently, and you can see more and more as you see the catastrophes increase, and now they're telling us that uh, the volcanoes are ready to erupt and all these different things. We don't have time to go into all that, but but I would say that it's it not going to be another 100 years. My personal opinion is it will not be another 100 years. My opinion is it will be within 20 years, uh, maybe 25. But that's that's it. We're definitely we're definitely in the time. And second of all, in your in your Bibles, you often have as a chart, and it shows you know the church age, which shows the rapture, and then it shows great tribulation. The Bible does not say that the rapture has to occur just before the tribulation begins. In fact, it says when that which is restrained is taken out of the world, that's what that is when the Lord comes, and then everything goes downhill from there, and it could be two, three, four years after the rapture uh, before the events in Revelation occur. That's my personal opinion. You got anything on that, Hunter? Um, my opinion, well, I don't, I just don't really get... Tell us your opinion when you were young. <laughs> I didn't have one when I was young. When you, when you were 15, yeah. what was in it? In fact, I, I asked my mom about this when I was older. I was like, what, what does our church believe about uh, like end times? Because I don't remember ever hearing about it. And she said... Basically, we believe that we shouldn't talk about it in a broad church setting. We should talk about it just hmm. between us. And that's that probably influenced my view. My view is, so when I was in school. Shh, this is a broad church thing. So I, no, no, no. Okay. When I was uh, in school, if, there, if I knew there was a fire alarm that was going to happen between these like two times, the amount of work I got done during the, that time when I'm just sitting there waiting for the fire alarm to go off was not very much. Um, and so that's probably partly due to my age. You know, um, I would rather just go, I hope it happens soon. Um, and just, but keep busy, you know, 
kind of like you said, I should be working um, when he comes. So I haven't really given a whole lot of thought because um, I guess I don't see a whole lot of difference that it makes to me except for, you know. Well, the other um, thing is, though, if you know that the Lord can come at any time, it says work for the night is coming when no man can work. Right. That that gives me a higher imperative Increases to get urgency. people to saved. And, and that, you know, that's mm-hmm. when it was real popular uh, back in the 70s, but the Lord, everybody thought the Lord was coming back then. Hal Lindsey wrote a book, et cetera. People were getting saved left and right because people thought it was the end. And they were they were evangelistic, very evangelistic. And uh, it, that's I think that's part of what God wants us to have <laughs> by not, not, not knowing. knowing yeah. You know, you, you want to work very hard because you don't know. Next week, it could be done with, you mm-hmm. know. You, you, and if you think people are going to get saved after you're gone, and when they're not getting saved while you're here, think again. Right. What's, there's going to be no reason for them to want to get saved. The the light's going to be taken out. The you know the whole thing. So it's very urgent. We should have a high urgency to get people saved and discipled. Right. Yeah. And I think to an extent, like if I think I have seventy more years to evangelize on Earth, that kind of changes how I view my week to week evangelistic efforts. Whereas if I thought I had a week to yeah. <laughs> to evangelize, yeah. you know that that would probably um, I mean, it would change my strategy just, you know, from a, a logical standpoint, but it would, it would change my urgency and my, um, my thought process on the whole matter. Yeah. I, I think that you, I don't know that I would agree that we never should talk about end times. I mean, it's, it's in scripture. So I, right. I think we should talk about scripture. I think we should work through it to the extent that we can. I think we need to keep uh, a humble, a well, humble heart on, let me, on it, but go ahead. Uh, I don't know if my church never talked about it, but they definitely never took a position on it. Yeah. I, I don't have a problem with people taking a position on it. Um, I think that like, like any position on a disputed matter, you need to hold it loosely, which right. is to say, you should not be angry with people who don't share your position. You should not, you might, there are certain positions, which I think just don't comport with scripture. And I think it's worth, I think it's worth for those who are holding those positions saying, uh, you know, your position is, does not appear to comport with scripture. Like I would with anybody who's position didn't comport well, with scripture. That has less to do with But there the are some issue. areas yeah. where reasonable minds can differ. Here, here's what I would say. I don't think there's much question about, about the fact that we have seen things happen that no one could have that we that no one could have understood how they could happen, and so therefore they were looking at them, especially the church fathers or some of the church fathers, Augustine and others, Augustine. I'm sorry, I got to say it the fancy way. Um, you know who who looked at this end times prophecy as as metaphorical, as, as something like that. If they saw what we saw and see now, it would be very easy for them to say, "Oh, that's not metaphorical. You can actually do that." Um, and so it's that's right. It's, that's actually, that's actually the turning point. Uh, was with Augustine or Augustine. He uh, he's the one who changed the whole concept and and understand that there was no Israel, no Ju- right. there was no Jerusalem. So how could it be literally true? Right. I mean, until 1948, there was no literal Israel. So how could you interpret anything literal? And that's when that's when uh, end times changed dramatically, dramatically. Now there was other theories before them, but it changed dramatically in 1949 because now you had a literal restoration of Israel, literally. So that changes the way they looked at things. Yeah. Absolutely correct. And I think, I think things will continue to change as 
as knowledge increases, as more things happen, we will more of it's going to fall into place. So to answer this question, sort of will this be chronological? At some level, yes. As more things become clear, as more of the prophecies start to be fulfilled, it will become clearer and clearer. Uh, that you know that we are closer and closer and closer to the return of Jesus, and I would just say, be ready, which means work hard, don't sky gaze, think about your friends, family, neighbors, and those that God has called you to evangelize, to to witness to, uh, to to talk about who He is, and and don't think that you have forever to just you know, for instance, Hunter, you know. He's got, I mean, unless something bad happens to him, uh, you know, he could he could live another 70 or 80 years, um, especially with modern science and technology. And so if you're thinking, I got 80 years to get some folks saved, yeah, you might kick back a little bit, uh, you know, go to Disneyland, whatever it is you did recently, <laughs> instead of evangelizing, uh, you know, it could be like that. All right, let's get to the next one. How do you answer someone uh, who believes the Bible was rewritten by King James to please the king? Not because it was translated, but written to please the current society. Um, just historically inaccurate. Um, I, I, totally. There's not a lot of time to spend on that other than the fact that, that you won't find any historical evidence of that. The King James, original King James version of the Bible is a translation from the Greek texts. Um, we have actually found uh, more extant copies that we've been able to do um, to do the critical studies that that triangulate the original language a little bit better since 1680 or 16, what was it? Whatever it was, um, and so we can actually get even a, even a slightly more. Um, accurate translation now, but the translation then was a translation. It was not written by the king to please the king. Um, those are the kinds of theories that people throw around the internet and things like that. But there's just no historical backing to that. I don't. I don't even want to mess with that one. It's I just, also. I think people think that we are our current English translations of the Bible came from the King James. Like we translated the King James right. into a more modern language, and that's not. No, we didn't look at the King James when we no. all, all major Bible, you know, whether it's NIV, NKJV, King James version, go through the list. They other than a couple like the message and the amplified Bible and, you know, some of the, the living Bible is a paraphrase. I mean, I remember right. that being a big deal in the eighties and so on. Um, but there is a living Bible translation yeah. now. Look, they're, they're translations. They, they're yeah. translations from the original languages, the Hebrew, the Greek, the Aramaic into English. If you really want to get into that, you should do some reading. There's a majority text and a minority text and uh, you can get a lot of information, but what, what is true is there's no conspiracy whatsoever, and that when you read the King James Bible and somebody's reading a different translation, it's amazing how close they are and totally together in thought. So, uh, no, they, they didn't do anything for King James. Yeah, thou hast spoken accurately um, upon the King James text. Uh, look, it's it was, it was modern language at the time. Um, it was a translation of modern language at the time. We don't speak exactly how they did um, at the time, and so you see uh, more... More recent translations reflecting uh, the way that language is, language itself uh, ebbs and flows in terms of because it's, it's symbolic for meanings, right? And so it's going to change to some extent, but it doesn't change. The meaning is the thing that stays consistent. The language changes somewhat depending on how recent the translation is. But these are translations. Look, the historical facts are there. If you want to walk through it, um, go to SeekingSkeptics.com. Um, Skeptics Forum from 2016, number four, is on Scripture, and I talk a lot about this, uh, about how translation works and, and so on. So you can walk through that. The, the, other, the next one here for the same person, are the saints of the Catholic religion considered idols? Okay, let me, um, we may have some Catholic listeners, uh, and so let me just 
carefully uh, answer. Let me say why somebody might ask this question. Somebody might ask this question because uh, the Catholic Church does a lot of iconography, which is to say they will make statues and so on of saints. Um, Yeah, you've seen things like the candles uh, that you can buy at Walmart that have, uh, you know, Mary or one of the saints or Jesus on them and so on. Um, You can go to a Catholic church, depending on the church, and you can find um, different... um, uh, representations of saints or Jesus or Mary and, or something like that. And so there's this feeling from Protestants, particularly Protestants who uh, don't have a strong understanding of Catholic tradition, to sort of just do with a broad brush sweep and say, all of that is idolatry. They're worshiping these statues and so on. Um, let me say this. That is that can possibly happen, especially in some areas of the world where Catholicism has possibly allowed syncretism of, of religions that existed in, in an area where they've gone in as missionaries. And so there's been a religion that's existed there, and they've allowed the people to sort of keep some of that and syncretize in Catholicism. That's, that's where you take your biggest risk of having things like Mary worship or or saint worship, things like that. The, the way if you ask a Catholic, a thinking, thoughtful Catholic, um, who, has, who has thought through these issues, who has a good understanding of Scripture and so on, they would say they're definitely not worshiping these icons. They would say that there's, they, they, that's what they would say. I mean, you, you can have your conversations with them and you'll find out. Go, you can't, just like you can't go to the Christian, if you want to get an idea of, say, Baptists or Methodists or, or Wesleyans or whatever, you don't go to the, to the middle of the swamp and find the guy who says, believe in Jesus or I'm going to cut you to get your theology, right? That's not the person that's unfair to base the theology off the person who knows nothing of the Bible, who knows nothing. And so what some people do is say, well, these Catholics, they say this. Well, sure, but that doesn't mean that's what the Catholic Church says or what thinking Catholics say. You can find somebody in Acts Church who would say, I I think the Bible says this, and you could say, oh, that's what Acts Church believes, but it wouldn't be true. If you want to know what Acts Church believes, come and talk to one of the elders. Come talk to Pastor Dave or Hunter or myself or someone. We can tell you what Acts Church believes, but you can't just go to a random person and ask them. And so in that way, that's how this is built up, where it's where people think that Catholics are worshiping icons. Maybe some of them are, but that is not the position of the Catholic Church. Well, the, the thing about the saints are they're supposed to be examples. They're supposed to be the people to look for influence. What they do believe is that these saints are active uh, and that you can pray to a saint and ha- have them work in your behalf uh, in, an, in an accessory way. In assess- in intercessory. A, intercessory way. Thank you. Uh, and so they, they they see them as pubs. Now, I'll just say the closest we've got to that is there's a lot of people who are Paul worshipers in a sense. You know, the Apostle Paul said this, Apostle Paul that, and, and, uh, and they, and they uh, make the Apostle Paul out to be something which, which he was a follower of Jesus and empowered by Jesus and influenced by Jesus. But Paul himself would tell you anything that's good comes from the Lord, not from him. It's not him. It's not the person. Right. It's the power in the person. And that's that's the distinction. So, yes, there are good examples. There's supposed to be people with influence. And, you know, if you want uh, your son to do something, go ask a mother to influence. I, I know that, that is true. I can ask Denise to influence David sometimes. And uh, it's it's true, but that's not it's not a true doctrine. Mary is not actively interceding for you. There's only one intercessor for you. It's found in 1 John, and that's 
Jesus Christ. He's your intercessor. He's your uh, attorney, your lawyer, your, your one who uh, is in your, your behalf. So that's the, that's the fallacy of the saints. And let me, let me play the other side for a minute just so that, so that we're being fair to um, the argument. I agree that that is the way they look at it. So there are times in church where we go, well, I might come over to Hunter, or somebody might come to me and say, Pastor David, will you, will you pray for me today? I just, I just need you to pray for me. Um, you know, and so then we'll go over in the, and, and, I'll, and I'll lay my hands on and I'll pray for that person. And, and they're asking me to pray for certain things. And we're praying together, but they're asking me to pray for them. There are a lot of Catholics who would see what they, what they do in, quote unquote, praying to a saint as that. They believe that when we die, we're not died to be asking for the bodies, to be present from the Lord, that these saints are alive, active in the presence of Christ, and that it's kind of like asking Peter to pray for you or to pray with you or so on. Now, I do not see a scriptural warrant to, to take on that as a doctrine. I, I disagree with it as a doctrine because I do not see a warrant scripturally. If it was, then what I think we would see is we would have seen things like Paul when he's praying in the scripture or so on, saying something like asking Stephen the martyr to intercede for him with Jesus or any prayer at all to Mary, which you see none of. Um, and so because I don't see it as a practice of, of, the, of, this, of the authors of scripture, the author of scripture being the Holy Spirit, um, and then the, uh, the folks who were used to, to write the Bible, because I don't see it as a, an early church doctrine in that sense and rather something that sort of came up later, although you can make arguments for it I personally disagree with that as a normative way for the believer to walk through their life, which is to say to constantly be saying, this is the patron saint of, of well, the uh, fallacy you know, this is or that. in that you're not looking to the one, the author and finisher of your faith. Why go to somebody who's secondary when you've been, so you can enter boldly into the throne of grace to God himself? Why would you, why the only reason you do that is if your confidence is low. You don't feel that you have the a right to come before the Lord. That's usually where it's at. Usually the person feels inadequate, so they want somebody else to help them in that. And what, what we need to know as believers is you, you, God loves. You, God says, come in. He sees you as a child, and so you come into his into his realm uh, as a child. And, and there's no need to have your brother or your sister go and and your behalf, you go yourself. And that's what we need to learn. We need to learn boldness, come boldly before the throne of grace. We need to understand that you have, you should have confidence in the Lord. Don't, don't try to get secondary because that you can have other people live your life for you. And that's not a good thing. Now, asking elders to pray for you, that's scriptural. Asking people to intercede for you, that's scriptural. But remember what Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, you know, it's not us who wield the power; it's God, and and so yes, you can go to you go to elders because you're told to, and they will pray uh, in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Lord. But do not get into that to the point where you're you never live in your Christian life. You need to come before the Lord directly. That's that's the whole thing that uh, the priesthood of the believer, which uh, transformed. The Reformation, uh, Martin Luther. You can read about that too. Yeah, well, to the extent that that praying to saints or even asking your brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for you is recreating a veil 
between you and God, um, it's it's wrong. That veil has been torn. We can come directly into the throne room of God, and we ought to, and we ought to regularly, and we ought to without ceasing. Having said that, obviously it's scriptural to ask others to pray for us and to pray with us, and the prayer of a righteous person avails much. Um, and so there's there's uh, an aspect to that. As far as saints who have passed away, um, there are issues that ha- that are way beyond what I'm going to talk about today that have to do with eternity and the way that it works and and all of that. That would su- make that would suggest to me that that's not the way to roll. You've got Christians with you right there physically who can be praying with you, who can be uh, loving you, who can be walking with you, but they shouldn't be between you and God. If they're between you and God, then exactly what Pastor Davis said here, you're lacking the confidence that you that is your birthright as a believer. Um, and so pray with others, but as far as praying to saints, that's not something that generally speaking. Uh, Protestant churches have uh, have have taken with them from that from that Catholic tradition or or that Eastern Orthodox tradition and so on. Or the so, early church, right? I, I, I just don't. Again, we we have to go back to Scripture and 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 history and see what what was going on, and it's just not something that we see. And so, therefore, that's that's how we feel on that. Let me go to the or unless Hunter, you wanted to pray to a saint or something. Do you have some? Yeah, real quick. No. Oh no. Okay. Um, What do I say to the children of my friend who committed suicide? Children who now believe there is no God so they can believe their mom is not in hell. Wow. Um, Good morning. If you're uh, just joining us. Uh, Wow, that's a tough one. Um, So you got a friend. I'm assuming a friend who was not a believer or who was not professing to be a believer who committed suicide. Um, and the children now have decided to become atheists rather than to face the possibility that their mom who, who committed suicide may not be in heaven. Uh, what would I say? Um, I would say a couple of things. One, if there is a heaven and a hell um, and a God, which there's good evidence to believe all of those things, and particularly that there's a God, uh, pretending like he doesn't exist is not going to make him go away. So that's that's that closing your eyes and and going you know putting your hand, fingers in your ears and closing your eyes and going la 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 does not make the world disappear um, as much as you may want it to, and so that's not a that's not a good way to face this this truth. The second thing is that if your mother, um, in fact, was an unbeliever and did die and and is not with God, the one thing she would want you to know for sure is that you should be um, with God and not and, and not reject him. Um, there's no one right now who would more want their children to, to not do that. We remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus and this rich man saying, go to my brothers and tell them, uh, you know, I don't want them to end up coming here. And so, uh, you know, that's that is a an undoubted thing. And then here's the thing. We don't know. You don't know what has happened or what did happen or whatever happened in the life of, of this woman who, who's passed away, who's committed suicide. We don't know if there was a time when she did um, become saved, when she did believe upon the name of Jesus Christ and become saved, even if later she struggled with it or whatever. You don't know what happened at the moment. I don't know, of course, how this person uh, ended their life, but you don't know what happened in those moments leading up to. The fact is you just don't know the heart of anybody. I, I am very hesitant to ever say about anybody that they're in hell. Um, because 
while I know there will be people who will reject God and will reject him to the end and will reject him while they're in hell and will never, uh, it will never make him Lord of their lives. I also know that there are people who might change and who might change at the very last moment, like the thief on the cross. And so uh, assuming that somebody is in hell is also a dangerous game to play because we're told not to make those kinds of judgments about condemnation and salvation about other people's hearts. And so I would say, always hold out hope um, for, for your mom. But the last thing you want to do is that because your mom made a mistake about who God is, that you would make the same mistake too, so that you would end up suffering as well. That just doesn't make sense. Um, if God is real and so on, the last thing you want to do is say, well, if mom can't be, and I've had, I remember talking to a person who said, if my grandpa, who you know was professing unbeliever and who passed away, if grandpa isn't in heaven, then there is no such thing as heaven. Because, you know, they needed grandpa to be in heaven. And it's like, uh, I get it. I get that you love grandpa, but you would you would take your eternal destiny. And because your grandpa made made mistakes and, and refused to, to believe in Jesus, you're going to give your eternal destiny up for that? That doesn't make any sense. So I'll let you guys go ahead and jump in. Yeah. Uh, the question was from someone who's... Fr- let me... I'm trying to remember what the question was. The friend of this person had committed suicide in her... It was her kids that they're asking about how they interact with them. Yeah. Yes. So my thought is... Depends on how old the kids are first, right? Right. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, regardless of how old they are, I would say that your job isn't like to convince them, like you were kind of saying, it's not your job to convince them that they are either, that the mom is either in heaven or hell. What you probably could convince them is that whether, whichever place she's in, she would want you to be in heaven. She would want you to um, have a thriving relationship with Jesus. Um, and I think that's probably the safest way to to interact with those kids, I'm guessing. Um, of course, the details of how that works has to do with their age and, and all that sort of stuff. But yeah. One of the questions that could be asked is, your mother committed suicide. Does she want you to do the same thing? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair question to ask. Obviously, I mean, they have to be a certain age to get that. They have to be able to process information. But if they're at that age, you you say she committed suicide. Are you going? Do you think that was a mistake? Do you think it was wrong? And they're going to say yes. I think it was wrong. I think that she shouldn't have done it. Well, then she doesn't want you to do what she did. She doesn't want you to do things that are wrong. So you so you know her example set was suicide. She's not asking you to follow in her steps. In no. fact, she'd be very upset if you did. And the same would be true about if, if in fact, she's, if she's separated from the Lord. Um, look, the, the emotions that accompany something like losing a mother are probably not the time to get into really deep philosophical conversations. The best thing you can do to show somebody's children Jesus in this moment is just to love them, bring them some food, uh, you know, let them know that you're praying for them, uh, meet their needs, and so on. Not argue with them because they've now become atheists over their mother. Give them some time to work through their anger with God, their anger with their mother, which is really what that probably is, and so on. Um, obviously, suicide is a tragedy, and we've known people who have um, lost hope and who have and who have made the decision to end their lives, and and it is. An unfortunate thing, but it usually is not. It usually does not happen from a place of mental clarity. Um, and when you're thinking about whether God exists, that should come from a place of mental clarity. Uh, and so, 
you want to work through these things the right way, but in the right timing. So that, that was kind of a tough one. I don't. Sometimes the question is we don't have the chronology. We don't know how long ago it was and so forth. I would not suggest you do anything that we talked about at first at the beginning nope. because you got hurting people. Right, right. This one talks about the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Rosetta Stone, and other extra-biblical sources. Um, can they have value? Uh, simply put, yes. I mean, there are, there are ancient documents and so on that can have value. Their value is going to be determined based on um, the historical pedigree of the, of the find, uh, what, you know, what we can. I mean, certainly from the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have, we have fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls that match, um, you know, for instance, uh, manuscripts we have of Isaiah perfectly. Uh, you know, or or almost exactly perfectly. So they obviously they have value because the you know some of the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, that have been found have actually validated what we know and what we have as far as existing or extant uh, manuscripts of Scripture. Uh, the Rosetta Stone and other artifacts and things like that, they have value from a historical standpoint. From a theological standpoint, I don't think that there's probably an incredible value, but most of these finds, archaeological and otherwise, that we find usually confirm Scripture. And so I'm not sure there's much more to say about, about that other than uh, absolutely as, as those who study Scripture, as those who study the ancient Near East um, and, and its culture and traditions and so on to help us understand and interpret Scripture, um, I think archaeological finds and so on have, have incredible value. Anybody else want to say anything about that? Well, the, the especially uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls because they, they were miraculously... Uh, hidden for years and years and years in a dry spot that kept them. So the fact that we have them is amazing, and, and it's hugely historical. And, there's, and, you know, if you go to Israel, uh, to Jerusalem, you're going to see the Dead Sea Scrolls on uh, display there. It, it's really quite amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the Bible, there were certain animals that God didn't want us to consume. Does, does this still, is this still the case today? If no, Why? Um, okay, I'm going to give you the very short version. I'll let Pastor David Hunter add to it anything that they want. Um, but yes, there were animals that there. There's a whole thing that was going on, and you have to understand it in context of the entire of the entire scripture. But God set aside, set apart for Himself, a people, and there were a bunch of of rules and traditions that were set down to keep that people separate from those that were around them because they were a called out separate people, just like the church is a called out separate people. But for these particular people, there were a number of rules, practices, and so on that we see as ceremonial law in the Old Testament. One of those things had to do with uh, clean animals versus unclean animals. And you weren't to eat unclean animals and you were to eat clean animals. Obviously, there are Jewish folks who take the kosher, what we would call the kosher laws, and continue them to this day. Um, we have in the New Testament an understanding of fulfillment of those kinds of laws in Christ. And we have an understanding if you go to Acts 10, then you walk through 10 and 11, you walk through Peter and the, and the sheet coming down and so on. Um, you can see both that God has brought Gentiles who were not allowed to be, uh, who were also considered unclean into the family of God. And also many people believe uh, at the same time um, dealt with the issue of unclean and clean animals. Now I'll say this. There's some stuff that's nasty to eat, right? I mean, you, I just wouldn't eat it. Uh, I wouldn't eat. I wouldn't eat a cat. I would eat. You know, I, I wouldn't eat a tarantula. Some people eat both of those things in different parts of the world. They don't consider it to be a problem at all. I think that's nasty. Um, but as far as what it, it, are there things that are uh, unclean to eat? 
Um, generally speaking, I would say no. That is no longer, at least if, there, if they are, it would have more to do with health or issues like right. that. And it would not have anything to do with uh, there being a ceremonial reason for us to be set apart from people by not eating certain foods. That that has been fulfilled, that has been taken care of. Um, obviously, we could spend hours talking about the Old Testament uh, laws and how it worked and what Jesus did in fulfilling that and, and what, what was happening in Peter with the sheet and three times and what, what we've seen in the history of the church since then and so on. But I'm going to leave it at that. If you guys want to add anything, go ahead. Well, just one thing. When Moses wrote the law, he's the first writer because before Moses, you didn't have any of the Old Testament in writing. However, if you go back to Noah, you'll see that he was to take on the ark seven pairs of clean animals. And so the clean and unclean animals existed pre-law. It was, it was evidently given by God earlier in a vocal transmission passed on through uh, time because he already had a clarity on that. Uh, and uh, so uh, clean and unclean did not begin with Moses. The, the clean and unclean animals began before that. And you, when it comes to the bottom line, we now have uh, ability to understand, for instance, why pig was not good to eat because of trigonosis. We understand the things that, uh, you know, crawl at the bottom of the sea and eat garbage that God says he doesn't want us to consume, all, all those kind of things. They, they are more uh, ceremonial, sometimes health-wise, but either way, um, you, you still, I think, should watch uh, what you eat uh, as a Christian based on health, you know, based on uh, those things that— uh, and principle wise, as as much to you information as you have, in other words, whatever God has given you freedom for, and uh, so you know it, it's with a clear conscience. That's what that's the key. But I will tell you, as you grow in the Lord and in the spiritual spiritual things, you'll find a lot of things that are not sin. In a sense, for the majority of people, can become sin for those who are more learned or held to a higher responsibility. Uh, those, that does occur, uh, not necessary to go into that deeply. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You don't have anything else on to? Yeah, I was just going to bring up the other. Yeah, there were some also, just as an interesting side point, there were some health issues with a lot of the things that um, God set aside as unclean foods uh, that because of modern technology and understanding of uh, bacteria and stuff like that, we now are able to eat cleanly without and problems. they have been able to eat cleanly for actually not just really modern but for quite right. some time right right uh it, let's i'm gonna ask you a more practical question um for those of you who don't know hunter eats at subway probably about four out of every five meals <laughs> if god all of a sudden too. said subway is unclean hunter i mean would you continue to be a christian or would that be an issue for you i i could survive okay Right. I know you don't believe me, just, but just I could wondering. Survive. There's a lot of subway going through your gullet. So, um, <laughs> how should how should I respond to the statement um, when other people make this statement to me? I am good with my God, and He is okay with the way I live my life. Um, <laughs> I'll make it pretty simple for you. Uh, it sounds like your God is you. Um, if He is any any God that's completely okay with the way you live your life is a God that you've invented that has surprising similarities to your own self. Um, and so I would say, if that's, if that's true, 
is there anything you could do that would upset your God? I mean, I, that's where I would start. With, with, with people who say things like this, the, the clarity comes in. They have not spent a lot of time thinking well through these issues. And so I would ask questions like, well, is there anything you could do that would upset your God? Is your God okay with me? Um, because you got mad at me about whatever. Was that just you or is your God mad at me too? Does your God allow everything? At some point, what you come to is, is the fact is, is that this God, quote unquote, that they're talking about um, isn't God at all, but only the, only the way that they justify their poor behavior. Um, and so I think that that one, because it's, it has such a weak pedigree philosophically is pretty easy to deal with. Um, I don't know if you guys would handle that differently, but I would just start asking questions well, about I, your God. I think the idea also, it's like you've talked about before, is, is, is your God a buffet? You get to choose what you want and what you don't want, you can just not deal with. Uh, so in other words, you're going to create your own God, just like you get to create your own meal at a buffet. Uh, and that that is really what you're doing. Because you you may say, yeah, God would be angry at me if I did a lot of different things. Uh, but I don't do those things, so that's why I'm okay. But you, it's not up to you to find who God is. It's up to you who to, to discover who God is. There's a difference between defining him uh, by your own terms and by getting to know who he is. This has been an ad for the seniors breakfast at Golden Corral on November 17th at 9 a.m. <laughs> where, where the buffet is your God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hopefully not. Yeah, I hope Just not kidding. too. There have been times when, when I have uh, looked very high, highly on a buffet, um, especially if it's got either prime rib or crab legs, um, but not as God. Um, all right. I, I think we're going to wrap this up. I've got one more here. Um, I think this one was actually for my mom. Uh, the only person I want to call out for she said, what about a believer who lets money control their life? What to say, how to help. Very easy. Very easy. Um, just say, look, money's controlling your life. <laughs> so you should probably um, double your tithe. And that's it for this podcast. Um, so uh, obviously it'd be the same for anybody who's letting anything control their life other than Jesus Christ is you've got to walk them through the discipleship process, um, help them to see that there are things, and this is for true for all of us, help them to see the things that are between them and a closer walk with the Lord, things that are between them and, and the things God's called them to do and, and, and help people get their priorities right. Well, you've got to also recognize the culture. If a person was raised where money was the most important thing in their lives, it's ingrained in them. And just asking them to change doesn't work. It has to be a, a spiritual transformation in that sense. But I'm just telling you, you can, if somebody who is, who you, they, they can try, but if it's ingrained in them that money makes who you are, that without money, you're nobody. And and money's important. You're not going to get that out of somebody very quickly. And it really is going to be miraculous. Have to be a miraculous move of God. And the first thing I would say is you pray for them like you've never prayed before on that issue. Pray that God will open their eyes to that. Let them see, uh, because it, between them and God, they're going to have to deal with it. But it, because it's a, it can be so ingrained in a person, it's not an easy thing. There's yeah. no simple. And that's and that can be true for so many things. I mean, Absolutely. whatever. If you're finding your value, this is really important. If you're finding your value in anyone but Christ, in anything but Christ, yeah, I need a certain level of power. I need a certain amount of influence. I need a certain amount of money. Uh, you know, I need I need my kids uh, to love me a certain way or to look at me a certain way or I need this or I need that. If it's if those are the things that you're looking to that make you feel valuable, I need a certain amount of likes on Facebook. I'm going to do another duck face selfie, um, you know, and say no makeup hashtag, you know, no filter, blah 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 blah, and get people to say, oh, you're so good looking. Um, if that's your thing, that's my impression of Hunter, by the way. Oh. If that's your thing, 
then you are never going to be satisfied, first of all. Um, and our job as believers is to pray for you. It is absolutely a spiritual issue. Um, and, and, we, and we deal with spiritual issues in others by praying and by modeling and by discipling and by, and by walking through, showing them what the scripture says, showing them who they are in Christ. The more that they understand who they are in Christ, the less they have to rely on money, sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever it is. Um, and if you believe that money makes you nothing, um, then then you are going to be a very sad person no matter how much money you have because you could always have more. That's a problem with, with money. That's a problem with numbers. That's and right. so That's right. we at this table have just decided we'll just be nothing um, and yeah. we'll, we'll move well, from there. To, to be, you know, the scripture says be satisfied in whatever. Like Paul said, I had a lot. Paul said, I had none. But I learned in whatever place I'm in to be content. And godliness and contentment are a great gain. That's that's what's that's the important thing. And the and a lot of people believe is that it's easier to be content with a lot than with a little. And that sounds like if I said something like, "Well, it's a lot easier being content with a lot than a little," a lot of people would be like, "Yeah, that sounds right." But it's actually completely untrue. It's no easier to be content with a lot than it is to be a little if you if if the drive of your heart is to always want more. Well, right. I've some of the most. Uh, unpeaceful people I've met are the richest ones because they're always at risk of losing money. I mean, they can lose thousands of dollars on the stock market in one day. If you don't think that gives tension to people who find money important, I got news for you. You know, they, they, they're more uncontent than anybody because they're worried that somebody's going to take it away from them or they're going to lose it. Yeah. Anything other than Christ where you find your value, you it, it is chasing the dragon as diminishing returns. It's like any addiction. You will never get enough. Right. Um, so, But in Jesus, you have more than enough. So Amen. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Just before you close, yeah. if you're going to, uh, you know, say it's Hunter, you got to raise your voice up a little bit higher than well, that. <laughs> I can't. Um, so, all right, let's let's go ahead and pray, uh, uh, Lord. We just ask that you uh, that you bless the the work we've done in this series, uh, uh, in these podcasts, and the messages on Sunday, and the stuff that we have on SeekingSkeptics.com, Lord. That you would bless that, that it would speak to people, that those who have questions uh, would receive some answers. Uh, there were some that we still didn't get to, um, but I pray that they would come to us and get some of those uh, questions answered, Lord, and that and that you would continue to show who you are through the truth of your word and through the truth of 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 what you. You've shown us in nature, and and uh, we just love you, Lord. We just ask that you'd be with us, and we'd be with uh, Acts Church, and be with all those that listen to this podcast, um, and that you'd use this to be a blessing in their lives. In your name, Amen.